Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Russia's claim it is withdrawing troops from around Kiev, which apparently is not happening, and the gloomy outlook expressed by Russian diplomats after a second day of peace talks with the Ukrainian delegation in Turkey. Joining us to assess what kind of territorial division of Ukraine might emerge from a peace agreement is Gerard Toll, a professor of government and international affairs at Virginia Tech. He's the author of a number of books, including Bosnia Remade, Ethnic Cleansing and Its Reversal, and Near Abroad, Putin, the West, and the Contest over Ukraine and the Caucasus. Taking into account concerns that Putin's advisers are not telling him the bad news, Gerard predicts that either Putin will get to keep Crimea and the Donbass with a land bridge between the two, or have to settle for the territories he controlled before he invaded his neighbour. Then with Putin's pal, Hungary's Prime Minister Orban facing an election on Sunday, we'll examine how Orban is managing to avoid being tainted by the toxic Putin as this kleptocrat and autocrat who controls Hungarian media, which does not allow the opposition to appear or campaign, is running slightly ahead in the polls. Joining us is Ruth Ben-Ghiat, a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and a cultural critic who was an internationally acclaimed historian, speaker and political commentator whose latest book is Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. She recently founded Lucid, an online publication about threats to democracy, abuses of power and how to counter them, and we will discuss her article at CNN, Orban's Juggling Act with Putin and Europe Faces a Key Test. Then finally we'll address the record-breaking catastrophic floods in Australia, which is led by a Prime Minister who does not believe in global warming, and speak with Paul Ehrlich, the Bing Professor of Population Studies Emeritus and the President of the Centre for Conservation Biology at Stanford University. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Population Bomb, Population Control or Race to Oblivion, as well as Killing the Koala and Poisoning the Prairie, Australia, America and the Environment, and The Annihilation of Nature, Human Extinction of Birds and Mammals, and his latest book, Jaws, The History of a Hidden Epidemic. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Gerard Toll, who's a professor of government and international affairs at Virginia Tech. He's the author of a number of books, including Bosnia Remade, Ethnic Cleansing and Its Renewal, and Near Abroad, Putin, the West, and the Contest over Ukraine and the Caucasus. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gerard Toll. Happy to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And you're quoted in an article in the Washington Post, How Ukraine Could Lose Land But Still Win the War with Russia. And the article mentions General Budanov, Ukraine's chief of defense intelligence, who recently said that the Russian endgame could be to split Ukraine into two, like the Korean Peninsula was split into North and South Korea in in the 1950s. So there are a number of possible scenarios there. I guess the most grim for the Ukrainians would be a split along the Dnieper River, where the east of Ukraine goes to Russia and the west to what's left of Ukraine. But maybe, given that the Ukrainian military is putting up such an extraordinary fight and the Russian military is being depleted rather rapidly, a less ambitious chunk of Ukraine for Putin might be in the offing. What's your analysis, Gerard? Um, well, I've, first of all, I think that the invasion has been a massive strategic blunder on the part of Putin. He uh, is clearly very misinformed about uh, a Ukrainian, the Ukrainian nation, the fact that the Ukrainian nation exists and is uh, 
is very distinctive and separate from Russia, but also on Ukrainian uh, public opinion. And frankly, I and a number of folks that uh, study this were astonished that the um, the goal of the invasion was so ambitious uh, from the outset, because we knew from our public opinion polling, and this is open data, this is open source, you don't need any kind of special intelligence agency in order to find this information out, that there would be no particular place beyond the uh, People's Republics that uh, uh, Russia had set up in Ukraine where Russian troops would be welcomed by a majority of the population. And you're talking so, about the Luhansk and... Yeah, uh, Luhansk yeah. and Donetsk. Um, so, um, frankly, the um, invasion of Ukraine therefore required Russia to take territory where the population was going to be hostile to the Russian army. Now, there are gradations. There are certain places which would have been more open to potential uh, Russian troops coming. Uh, but by and in large, uh, majority populations in all areas, including in the Donbass, the government-controlled areas of the Donbass, and we've seen that with Mariupol, uh, would be, uh, were hostile to uh, the Russian army coming in. So, um, it was going to be an invasion of a hostile population. Uh, and that's the situation that Russia finds itself in. Uh, it, um, the Russian army and the Putin um, government regime, whatever you want to call it, um, is learning a hard lesson here, which is its, uh, its particular ideology is coming into contact with uh, reality. And unfortunately, that's a very bloody and violent process in which thousands of people have died and so much destruction has been wrought on Ukraine as a consequence of this um, geopolitical delusion that uh, Putin has um, undertaken. So this dichotomy that's often stated about Ukraine between the Ukrainian speakers and the Russian speakers seems to be pretty specious, doesn't it, Gerard, given that the fiercest fighting has been in the Russian-speaking area around Kharkiv, which has still not been defeated by the Russians in spite of it only being a few miles from the Russian border, and as you mentioned, Mariupol, uh, which is being literally destroyed and Putin is asking for them to surrender, otherwise he's going to just flatten the whole place. They're Russian-speaking Ukrainians as well, and they're just absolutely furious with the Russians. So that's always been a specious division, has it not? That's that's correct. Uh, you're absolutely correct, Ian. I, I'm Irish. I'm speaking English. That doesn't mean that, therefore, I am in some way uh, sympathetic to, to England, <laughs> You know, the, you only need to uh, think about the particular history of uh, imperial spaces here in order to begin to understand the relationship between Ukraine and Russia. This is a post-colonial situation. It is one in which uh, Russia, uh, the Russian leadership is still in the grip of an imperial ideology vis-a-vis um, -vis, uh, territories that were once intimately close to um to uh, Russia. And, uh, you know, that process has also played itself out in other places, including my own um, home um, country of Ireland. And again, I'm speaking with Gerard Toll, who's a professor of government and international affairs at Virginia Tech. He's the author of a number of books, including Bosnia Remade, Ethnic Cleansing and Its Reversal, and Near Abroad, Putin, the West and the Context over Ukraine and the Caucasus. So do you think you mentioned that Putin is deluded and his idea of taking Kiev and taking the country in a lightning kind of blitzkrieg. I guess he was trying to imitate what the U.S. did in Iraq with its shock and awe. Have the military been lying to him or is he lying to himself or is it a combination of both? Um, I think it is a combination of both. Um, I tried to think in an empathetic stretch towards Putin, what would have led him to believe this? And here's the best I can do, which is that if you look at the 
public opinion polling in Ukraine before the invasion, you can see that President Zelensky's approval ratings were really quite low. The right direction, wrong direction index, which is a measure of uh, you know, sentiment and public mood, it was negative and strongly negative in Ukraine. Ukraine um, overall has not prospered in the post-Soviet period in the same way as Poland has, in the same way as Russia has. So uh, there's a lot of uh, general discontent with the state, uh, the level of state services. But that misunderstands a certain discontent with state services and with the current leadership and the current moment from the legitimacy of the state. The state is, uh, and the particular nation, are real things, and we're seeing that uh, play itself out. So I think that um, that is something that uh, we, you know, we have to um, keep in mind, that uh, the particular, the, the most generous reading of the situation in, um, in Ukraine was based on an error on the part of uh, Russian intelligence services. But I think your, your question also really is about the ways in which authoritarian regimes create information bubbles around themselves and the way in which war optimism takes a hold over uh, a leadership, an authoritarian uh, leadership, which uh, is full of yes-men, uh, people that affirm what it is they believe the leader wants. Um, and as a consequence, you don't have the, the, the value of, you know, a frankly democratic um, a sphere, a democratic debate where you have a argument and counter argument back and forth and you have, and that's valued, um, you know, in authoritarian uh, regimes, loyalty above all else is valued. So I think everybody's been surprised by Zelensky. I mean, it, when the war first started, I thought that he, being a former actor, he was pretty clueless about military matters and, uh, you know, having all of most of his armies concentrated on the, the line of conflict there in, in the Donbass, uh, it seemed as if the, the Russians were, were going to do a sort of pincer movement around him and trap his army. But clearly the Ukrainian military are much better prepared than most people predicted and they've done extraordinarily well. And of course Zelensky's uh, poll numbers were pretty weak when he was elected, he had was 70%, but he was elected on the basis of promising peace, which didn't happen, and his poll numbers went way down. But now it seems like the entire country's rallying around him, and he's got the international community on his side, and frankly, he's turned out to be quite impressive, wouldn't you say? Absolutely, absolutely. He has um, done an extraordinary job for Ukraine uh, in leading the nation in uh very dire uh, moment, and has shown extraordinary personal courage in staying in the heart of Kiev um, and rallying his forces. Now, um, it does help that he is an actor uh, because the people around him are very familiar with um, how to use the media and how to project um, information and to project a particular image. And, uh, you know, frankly, that's a huge, huge uh, weapon that Ukraine has had. He is at the center of that. Ukraine has hands down won the information warfare or information war um, about, this, uh, about this conflict in Europe, in North America. Now, beyond that, we have to ask questions. Uh, there's a, a, quite a bit of the rest of the world in Africa uh, and, uh, of course, uh, most famously China that are uh, on the fence on this. And well, you so, have to add India to that as well, Gerard. Yes, yes, that's right. And so we have to sort of um, be aware that in affirming Zelensky and seeing him as um, a figure who has been very, very effective, um, that is saying something about our culture, um, and it may not necessarily 
be received uh, well elsewhere, or there may be greater ambivalence elsewhere. So what do you make of uh, the peace talks in Turkey? The Ukrainians were suggesting that they were making progress, and then the Russians poured cold water on it, saying that there had been no progress. Also, there's been this Russian call for, or this statement coming from the Russian military, that they're pulling out of Kiev and concentrating their forces in the Donbass. And apparently the Pentagon and others, including the Ukrainians, are saying it's a feint and you can't trust the Russians. So let's start with the peace talks. Well, first of all, yeah, of course you can't trust the Russians because they said they weren't going to invade Ukraine. And uh, they, uh, of course, ended up doing that. So um, that uh, caution about what the Russians say uh, uh, has to uh, be, at least there has to be a check as to what actually are they doing. Uh, So that is fairly um, understandable. On the talks themselves, um, you know, there is a debate as to whether these are simply a means to allow the Russian military to regroup and uh, seek to uh, replenish its supply lines. And um, and I think that that's a, a real concern, that these are actually a, a feint in order to allow that to happen. Um, but, you know, there has to be an endgame. At, at some point, there has to be a particular settlement. It is clear that Russia cannot take all of Ukraine. It is clear that it is not going to be able to implement a regime change in the way that it wanted. Um, and it is also clear that um, its goal of standing up a puppet regime, which would potentially attract support in Ukraine, is is not viable. Um, and the fact that the war is dragged on, therefore, has meant that it has alienated the Ukrainian population, including those who may have in some way have been sympathetic to Russia. There's very, very few people to next to no people in Ukraine who are going to collaborate with the with the Russian army right now. Um, and so, you know, therefore, Russia has to say, what does it want? What is the what's the end goal here? Um, you know, the, there will be some form of partition of uh, Ukraine, whether it is just Crimea only or Crimea and the People's Republics. And that's what was the situation before uh, the war began. That's where Russia had its forces and Russia was, in effect, occupying a Ukrainian, internationally recognized Ukrainian territory. Now it is possible that the settlement could be Crimea and all of the Donbass. So all of the territory claimed by the People's Republic. So beyond simply the parts, the one third roughly of the Donetsk and Luhansk, oblasts that they they occupied. Um, I, so that is one territorial uh, possibility as a, as a settlement, along with a declaration on uh, Ukraine's neutrality. Um, the other one, which is beyond that, is where you would have Crimea plus the Donbass plus a land bridge to Crimea. And that would involve Russia taking certain territories in Zaporizhia and also in Kherson. Uh, but the problem is that they are not going to be able to occupy uh, those, the kind of key areas without resistance from the population. We're already seeing it um, in Kherson and in Melitopol, another city in Zaporizhia, uh, which is close to the coast. Um, there's been resistance by the local population against the Russian forces that are there, even though the Russian forces are trying to win over the population by giving out food and the like. So all of this is to say that um, there has to be some kind of a settlement, but um, I think getting a land bridge, which is a strategic goal that some have argued uh, the the Russian military may settle for. I think that that is quite a bridge too far. I, I don't think that that's necessarily going to happen. Mm. Uh, the 
the tragedy is the is the Donbass itself and the destruction of um, Mariupol. Uh, just the dri- driving out of the population there. It's 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 absolutely awful. So just in closing, then in the last couple of minutes, uh, Gerard told Abramov, the oligarch close to Putin, has been at these talks in uh, Turkey, and people are wondering why. But apparently, early on, Abramov tried to make himself a kind of peacemaker. And he talked to Putin, apparently, suggesting that Zelensky wanted to, was willing to talk. And Putin apparently said, I don't want to talk that, you know, bleep, bleep, bleep. I want to crush him. So do you think there's a way to change Putin's mind? I mean, he's had absolute power. This is what dictators do when they have absolute power. They, and you mentioned earlier that there's this information bubble because all these sycophants around him don't want to give him bad news. And the bad news is piling up here. And we don't know the extent to which Putin's being told what's really happening. But if he is told, is he capable of accepting defeat or declaring victory in the face of defeat? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. And, um, and I think what we can say is uh, he is capable of that. Uh, in that in 2014, you will recall, the initial policy of Russia was, of course, to try to control all of Ukraine with um, Yanukovych staying in power. When that failed, they then uh, took Crimea, but they also promoted this idea of Novorossiya. And Novorossiya was a sort of a a geopolitical... uh, project which would take all of southeast Ukraine. And that failed. That failed in Odessa and a number of other uh, towns where you had pro-Russian forces rally, but the local population uh, did not rally to them. There was even an occupation in Kharkiv, Kharkov, um, uh, but the pro-Russian forces that were behind that were uh, kicked out by the local authorities and the local elites there um, they of course had their own interests but they really rallied around um, uh, the Ukrainian flag. Uh, so that was a defeat uh, in effect. Now Russia's policy was sort of hands off. They were using proxy actors there so they could be played as well. We don't know anything about that. You know it's not a defeat. Um, here it is much more manifestly a defeat. But if you control the uh, media, you can spin uh, anything uh, the way you want. Uh, And so I have no illusion that uh, if the um, Putin regime want to spin this as a victory, as liberation of the Donbass, which is a particular um, term that has been um, uh, promoted if that is their, uh, you know, if that's what they decide they're only going to get, then they can spin that as a victory. Um, but I also think, and this is the second part I wanted to get at, is that I think that Putin is, you know, he's an emotional actor and he has got to be very angry about what has happened because uh, he's been exposed in a major way. And he is a persona non grata now across the world. And the Russian economy has taken a major, major hit. So there is a danger here that uh, this drives him further into a corner and then into further sort of uh, emotional reaction to the mess that his own actions has created. Um, and, you know, that's the scary thing. We just don't know how what the end game is going to be uh, here. Well, Gerard Toll, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Happy to do it, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Gerard Toll, who's a professor of government and international affairs at Virginia Tech. He's the author of a number of books, including Bosnia Remade, Ethnic Cleansing and Its Reversal, and Near Abroad, Putin, the West, and the Contest Over Ukraine and the Caucasus. We can take a brief station break and back looking into how Putin's pal Hungary's Prime Minister Orban is managing to avoid being tainted by the toxic Putin in the upcoming election on Sunday. A newborn- 
dark rocks below a bolted sky that unlocks for the departing of the flocks from the shadow of an empire. God loves a trial, an articulate liar. The auctioneer makes it clear and booms. Can you bid? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who's a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and a cultural critic who has been a recipient of Guggenheim, Fulbright, and other fellowships, an internationally acclaimed historian, speaker, and political commentator for The Atlantic, CNN, and The Washington Post, and other publications. Her latest book is Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present, and she recently founded Lucid, an online publication about threats to democracy, abuses of power, and how to counter them. And she has an article at CNN, Orban's Juggling Act with Putin and Europe Faces a Key Test. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ruth ben Giat. Thank you. So it, it's kind of infuriating that this sort of neo-fascist character, Orban, who's become a celebrity with the American right and Tucker Carlson of Fox News made a pilgrimage there recently and broadcast from Hungary. And the EU have been trying to kind of rein him in because he's a kleptocrat and he's been stealing a lot of the agricultural subsidies that they give him. But every time they try to do something about it, Poland comes to the rescue because it's also a backslider in terms of democracy. And now it looks as if this war in Ukraine is giving Orban a free pass, along with, of course, the Polish leaders as well, who are equally into moving towards an illiberal state. So he's a bit like Trump, isn't he, in dodging bullets and and sort of somehow staying in power? He he is, and he's, he's very artful at um, <clears throat> being a chameleon. Like all strongmen, he's a very transactional individual, and he cares mostly about preserving his own position. And um, but he's been uh, he's been behaving differently than the polls, who do have a far right government. But the polls, uh, for historical and present reasons, have been uh, very um, much in solidarity with the EU and being anti-Russian. Um, and. Orban is trying to do this juggling act where he doesn't want to compromise his relationship with Putin. He's dependent on Russian energy. So the main thing he's done is open his borders to uh, his border to Ukrainian refugees. But I think that um, he faces a tough election. All the opposition has banded together against him and it's become about democracy versus autocracy. So He's going to have a harder time uh, being so loyal to Putin in the future. Well, back in 2015, he refurbished a memorial to the Soviet uh, soldiers who were killed in the 1956 Hungarian uprising. And that's in itself pretty amazing, isn't it? He got away with that. Yes, he's... He's able to. Um, he's the. He's able to try and play all sides. In fact, in that CNN article, I argue that while he keeps saying we have to stay out of the war, we have to. He calls his approach, you know, pragmatic and cautious. But where he comes down on the side of democracy versus autocracy is is the latter. He he has um, in a liberal state, and he has crushed press freedoms, judiciary freedoms. And uh, if he wins this election on April 3rd, it's also going to be because the opposition uh, is not able to have uh, proper media time. The head of the opposition, Peter Marquise, has not been invited to be on TV since 2019. So in many, many ways, the electoral machinery, the media, the judiciary, uh, Orban is trying to game the system, which is what autocrats do today. And in that way, he's he's much more like Putin than like any um, Democrat. 
And again, I'm speaking with Ruth Ben-Ghiat, a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and a cultural critic who is an internationally acclaimed historian, speaker, and political commentator. Her latest book is Strongman, Mussolini to the Present, and she recently founded Lucid, an online publication about threats to democracy, abuses of power, and how to counter them. And she has an article at CNN, Orban's Juggling Act with Putin and Europe Faces a Key Test. But Putin is very toxic at the moment, and yet somehow Orban has turned his friendship to Putin uh, from a political liability into an advantage because he was neck and neck in the polls before the Ukraine war broke out, and now he's leading, um, not by a lot, but he's leading in the polls. So, again, he seems to be some kind of Houdini who, like Trump, who is manifestly criminal, anti-democratic, neo-fascist, and yet can't be nailed. Um, Tell me I'm wrong, because (laughs) I'd like to see some justice in both in the case of Trump and Orban. No, you're not wrong. And, you know, war is very unsettling, and some Hungarians uh, may feel that it they they do want to stay out of it, um, and so they like uh, Orban's stance, um, his pragmatism, and um, he, you know, they they also uh, Hungary is nearing a recession, and Orban knows very well that, and he said it publicly that you know if they're cut off from if there are sanctions, he's opposed sanctions against Russian on Russian energy because he says, I'm looking out for Hungarian interests. I don't want our prices to go up. And so he's, but he's, the reason he's interested in that is not because he cares about Hungarians. It's because he wants to stay in power. And economics is something that often we see uh, has more weight than ideology in what voters do. Well, indeed, when he visited Putin recently in February, before the war broke out, he made a sweetheart deal with Putin to get low gas prices in uh, Hungary. But still, you know, if you go back to the, about 2009, up, up until 2009, Orban was very anti-Russian. And then, from my understanding, the godfather of Russian organized crime, Simeon Mogilevich, who was in Hungary, set up a sort of compromat sting with mm-hmm. Orban, and they delivered a million dollars worth of Deutschmark in a briefcase to him. And that compromat is in Putin's hands, and that's how Putin operates with organized crime. And that might explain the switch from Orban being anti-Russian to pro-Russian. Is Do you have any more information on that? I don't, but... It makes perfect sense. And the other thing is that Orban, he sees himself as this great player hampered by having uh, a state that's not always in the news, that's considered less, you know, less important than Germany or Russia. And so what he's tried to do um, is become the kind of head of this far right movement. Now, Putin's the real funder of it. Right. And and. And that's what you were saying. Putin always has the compromise. Putin has the money. But that's why he has uh, invited all kinds of uh, leaders to to be under his patronage. And he has Tucker Carlson and Mike Pence went there. CPAC uh, in, in the U.S., you know, the, the, the GOP's political um, conference is supposed to be there. They've postponed it to May now. And and he's always gotten away with being the non-Putin um, it, it reminds me a little bit of how I'm not trying to do any direct comparison of these people with fascists, but how Mussolini got away with a lot because he wasn't Hitler. And so there is this way that Orban seems more palatable. We don't hear about people being poisoned. We don't hear about people falling out of windows. And even before uh, Putin invaded Ukraine doing war crimes. So that's one reason that um, the American GOP, uh, you know, is is has glommed on to him as their kind of mentor um, and says that Hungary is the model for the U.S. So he does know how to get away with a lot of things and how to try and um, 
B, you know, he's clearly under Putin's sway, but he also benefits from being the the not Putin, not the anti-Putin, but the not Putin. Well, he's been endorsed, of course, in the Sunday elections by uh, Donald Trump, needless to say. But in terms of what the Hungarian media, and you mentioned that the opposition simply can't even appear in the media because Orban's cronies control the media and it blasts out Russian propaganda. And what the Hungarians are seeing about the Ukrainian war is that this is all be, it's all being caused by NATO's aggression. The Ukrainian uh, government is full of Nazis. The Russian speakers in the East are being threatened with genocide. The Americans have a secret bioweapons plant in um, Ukraine, and so on. That's what they're hearing. That's that's what Orban is. That's the propaganda he's putting out to his people, and that he's sort of presenting himself as the peacemaker, and he's trying to keep Hungary out of the war, and that's apparently working for him. Yes, it's working perhaps right now. And and another character who is so repressive doing the same is Erdogan in Turkey. These people are trying to be the peacemakers, the moderates, again, the non-Putins. But we can never forget that that they are, uh, you know, thieves and repressive rulers themselves. And I do think, though, that this war is going to... um, hopefully accelerate movement on a front that many of us uh, and many in Europe have been uh, calling for action that, frankly, Orban has no business being in the EU. He has violated every one of the principles. He shouldn't be getting EU funds. And in fact, um, in December 2020, the European Parliament finally approved what they called a rule of law conditionality that linked the availability of EU funds to member states' respect for the rule of law and democracy. And Poland and Hungary together launched a legal challenge, of course, to this, but the European Court of Justice rejected it recently. So I'm hoping that um, the stakes of you know what autocracy means as seen by Putin and the way people line up here will will allow the EU to become far more you know, tough against these people like Orban, and then his juggling act will be more difficult to pull off. Well, at the moment, of course, Orban is asking the EU for more money because of hosting the refugees. So he's definitely brazen. But as your article at CNN, uh, Ruth Ben-Ghet points out, Orban's juggling act with Putin in Europe faces a key test. Uh, the article mentions or begins with uh, Zelensky's uh, talk to the EU leaders on th- last Thursday, his video speech, in which he said, Lithuania stands for us, Latvia stands for us. Then he came to Hungary and his tone changed. Hungary, I want to stop here and be honest, once and for all. You have to decide for yourself who you are with. Listen, Victor, do you know what's going on in Mariupol? So, Powerful words, and obviously he was he got a standing invasion with the EU leaders, but is that getting through to the Hungarian people, given Orban's control of the media? No, it's I don't know if that particular message is getting through. I mean, there's social media. In fact, the opposition has been using social media widely because the Orban doesn't have Putin-style blocks on social media. Um, and and so uh, uh, there are there's probably more, especially among younger Hungarians, uh, opposition messaging and Zelensky messaging than than you might think getting getting uh, through. So I, I just feel like it's very significant that the even before the war, the EU had started to finally move on putting uh, contingencies on funds. And, you know, Orban probably get his funds because they're for Ukrainian refugees. But the problem is when you have a a kleptocrat in power, it's not clear that the funds are even going to the right place. That's the whole point is that any funds from any source uh, get siphoned uh, off and they go into the coffers of of the leader and his cronies. And we've seen the toll of that with uh, the Russian military, which has been preyed upon uh, by thieves 
state thieves for years, and now we see the toll where the, the equipment doesn't work well and it's not in a good shape. Um, and that's a very good case study. So, so really, I, I can't. I feel so strongly that Orban not only shouldn't be in the EU, but he should certainly not be getting any funds. So I suppose, uh, Ruth, if if Putin has to, you know, give in and make a deal with Ukraine because of, you know, as you mentioned, massive corruption in the military or in the procurement, Putin's buddy, his cook, Prigozhin, his supplies, the food, and the, he puts the money in his pocket and the soldiers, Russian soldiers aren't getting fed. I mean, the whole thing is a debacle for the Russian military. So assuming that there is of some kind of peace and that Putin finally has to accept reality that he's uh, losing the war in Ukraine. Would that create a different environment, do you think, in Europe? I mean, they're still going to be saddled with, what, at least now 5 million refugees, massive reconstruction, although they do have $400 billion of frozen Russian funds that they could presumably uh, use to rebuild Ukraine. If we just can project forward a little bit, and assuming that Putin doesn't go to the mat and finally accepts reality, which I think is a, quite a big assumption, do you think that the environment might change to the point where they might boot Orban out of the EU, or at least make life difficult for him for a change? Yeah, and it also depends what Poland does. If Poland, I, and again, I, you know, the, Poland could could well, uh, as they can be very anti-Russian, but it doesn't mean they're pro-democracy. There's a lot of fear in, in, in these leaders about democracy, and they see that uh, far-right populism sells, intolerance sells with their, with their constituencies. But I do think that Orban could become more isolated, and especially you know, kicking them out of the EU is a big measure. I personally think it's necessary. But the main thing, these these leaders like Orban, they just care about getting rich and having power and staying in power. And so if the purse strings of the EU are uh, tightened or closed off, uh, then he'll, he'll start to have economic difficulties at home. And it's only the prospect of some um, erosion of his power that might lead him to change. So just in closing then, I refer to him as a neo-fascist. I'm astounded that the Russians' propaganda machine keeps referring to the Ukrainians and Zelensky, who's Jewish by the way, as being a government of Nazis and they're fighting Nazis, etc. Isn't it pretty clear that Putin is a fascist by the definitions. You study fascism. Your, your most recent book is Strongman, Mussolini to the Present. How would you categorize Putin? Yeah, he is, he is a, a, a kind of fascist. He's a far-right uh, ideologue. He's a fanatic. And his whole thing about Ukraine being neo-Nazi is simply he's, he's trying to, um, he's been trying to rehabilitate Stalin for some time and place himself in the, you know, trajectory of Stalin. And what did Stalin have besides uh, being a mass murderer and, a, and a, having terror, the Great Terror? He was the custodian of the Great Patriotic War, World War II. That was his claim to fame. That's his fame. And so Putin needs to be fighting Nazis in order for him to, uh, you know, have this mantle of Stalin and to motivate Russians because his whole thing is hyper-nationalism and what gets, uh, what, and they always build on nostalgia for the past, for greatness. And so fighting Nazis is this kind of morally um, clear thing among certain generations of Russians and he's, that's what he's settled on. Uh, but it's obviously a complete fabrication. Well, Ruth Bengat, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Always a pleasure. Well, thank you, Ruth. And again, I've been speaking with Ruth Bengat, who's a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and a cultural critic who is an internationally acclaimed historian and speaker and political commentator. And her latest book is Strongman, Mussolini to the Present. And she recently founded Lucid, an online publication about threats to democracies, abuses of power, and how to counter them. And she has an article at CNN 
Orbán's juggling act with Putin and Europe faces a key test. We're going to take a brief station break and back addressing the record-breaking catastrophic floods in Australia, which is led by a Prime Minister who does not believe in global warming. I walked up on a mountain in the middle of the sky Could see every farm and every town I could see all the people in this whole wide world That's a union that'll tear the fascists down, down, down That's a union that'll tear the fascists down When I think of the men and the ships going down While the Russians fight on across the dawn There's London in ruins and Paris in chains Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Paul Ehrlich, the Being Professor of Population Studies Emeritus and the President of the Center for Conservation Biology at Stanford University. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Population Bomb, Population Control or Race to Oblivion, as well as Killing the Koala and Poisoning the Prairie, Australia, America and the Environment, and The Annihilation of Nature, Human Extinction of Birds and Mammals, and his latest book is Jaws, The Story of a Hidden Epidemic. Welcome to Background Briefing, Paul. Nice Ehrlich. to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And you spend a lot of time in Australia. And as it happens, the town I grew up in, in Lismore in New South Wales on the north coast and Byron Bay are suffering record floods over 14 meters above the normal, uh, flooding the towns of Lismore and and the surrounding towns like Byron Bay. And this is a month after they were already had severe floods. Yeah, they've and been evacuated twice, according to my friends in Australia, and they got, I think it was 16 inches of rain in one day. So it's pretty desperate. They've had a really tough time in Australia with the climate disruption, with the fires. Last time I was there, I haven't been able to go back since 2019 when we were there during the big uh, fires. And of course they're having droughts, floods, and uh, they are working as hard as they can to contribute to climate disruption. Uh, the present premier uh, is doing everything he can with to make money with fossil fuels and make Australia's future bleaker. Uh, it's quite pathetic. And this of course is Scott Morrison who was installed by Rupert Murdoch the kingmaker who controls the Australian media, at least, what, two-thirds or three-quarters of it. Yeah, Rupert is probably the, the, the biggest time killer of all time in humanity. We don't know yet. But, of course, he is more responsible uh, for the world not taking any responsible action to stop climate disruption uh, through his phony news broadcasts and so on. So... Uh, Australia and America cannot be proud of their joint possession of Rupert Murdoch. And Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, is a born-again evangelical who's belonged to one of those charismatic Christian cults. In Australia, they refer to them as God-botherers or, hap <laughs> or happy clappers. And he visited um, Lismore and was soundly booed by the residents who had placards about climate change and his denial of climate change. So, uh, but he had to be escorted by police. Is the reality ever going to impinge upon these sort of, I wouldn't even call him an ideologue. I think he's just a, a hireling of the big the mining magnates and Rupert yeah. Murdoch. No, uh, the, uh, I hate to say it being involved with the university, but we've done a miserable job uh, of educating people to the existential threats that we face. You can see this now in the United States recently, an educated, in quotes, colleague asked me whether or not the Russians had missiles that could reach Alaska. Uh, in other words, we are in on the verge of a possible large-scale nuclear war that would end civilization, uh, and yet uh, we haven't managed to teach people what the uh, uh, what the facts are about nuclear war even, let alone climate disruption, which uh, of course is being denied uh, by, among other things, the funds through Rupert Murdoch and the fossil fuel industry. Um, now Rupert Murdoch is one of the kingpins of Murder Incorporated, uh, along with the fossil fuel industry and so on. It is truly disgusting, particularly if you have kids or like I have great-grandchildren 
who are facing a world that is on the edge of destruction because of the behavior of people today. And look, as long as you keep electing to office people who are convinced the world is run by supernatural monsters, uh, you're going to get these kinds of results. So you weren't able to go to Australia since 2019, and of course it's been um, difficult to get there because of COVID in any case. But you were there when the fires were devastating in many ways of the same region we're talking about now, suffering from floods. By the way, that storm system that's caused record-breaking floods in Lismore on the north coast and Byron Bay, etc., that's moving south. So there's going to be a lot more damage and could even get to Sydney uh, where it would do a lot more damage. But going back to when you were last there, that was when the same areas of the country were burned out. And the estimates that were given at that time were that 5 billion animals were destroyed, endangering the koala population. Yeah, the koala populations are now... Uh, still uh, way down, of course, from that period. And the the flooding won't help them or other animal populations. But of course, uh, one of the nice things about Australia uh, is that Australians have always been proud of their their wonderful native animals. You know, the, the kangaroo appears on the seal and all that sort of thing. And I would hope that Australians would get together Uh, and do something about their major role in causing climate disruption per capita, not as a country as a whole, but their pushing of uh, coal and uh, uh, gas and so on is just disgraceful. And one of the problems, of course, is Australia being a rich country. The more Australians there are, the worse off the world is in terms of Uh, our relationship to our environment. I mean, the premier of New South Wales is personally trying to destroy the planet by having uh, mobs of children, Uh, whereas anybody who can do a little bit of thinking knows the more people you have, the more greenhouse gases you're going to create, the less future our children are going to have. Instead of looking for quality of children, Australians, some Australians are still pushing for quantity. And what we want is quality, not quantity. We have too many people on the planet, particularly in rich countries like the U.S. and Australia and Japan and most of Europe. Although in Europe, at least, uh, the populations are tending to decline, fortunately. So, but in terms of the footprint for CO2, for global warming gases, Australia is among the worst, is it not? Yeah, by, by per capita, and it also manages to do enough to be one of the worst as a whole. Uh, And that's sad uh, because I love Australia, actually. And I love the U.S., except when we had Trump as president. Well, hold your breath and do everything (laughs) you can to stop him from coming back, Paul. But believe me, I and every person with an IQ of over 20 in the United States is working towards that. Right, but the idiocracy is going to vote him back. Do you have any idea of what population in this country belongs to the idiocracy that care more it, about it, the price it, it of gas? Looks like, it looks like maybe 20%. Oh. The trouble is that the idiocracy has many of clever leaders uh, who are trying to fix it so it will Trump will be reinstalled whether or not he actually wins the election. That was That's the real tragedy. We have what was a brilliant uh, governance system developed uh, more than 200 years ago now but it's way out of date and it's easily manipulated so that instead of having a democracy, you go more and more towards an oligarchy, which is what we have. We have uh, most of the power in the country rests in the hands of very, very few rich people. Thanks in part to Rupert Murdoch. Well, he's certainly one of them, but going back to Australia, do you think that the series of catastrophes, droughts, floods, fires of a biblical proportion. And now they're suffering another huge flooding after a month of, only a month ago, they had record floods. Now the records have been broken again. Surely, and the the signs that the people that were holding up protesting Prime Minister Morrison's tour of the afflicted area indicate they were talking about global warming. So he's a global warming denier. I can't imagine the majority of the population is. So they may. Uh, I, I don't think so, but uh, 
again, uh, I gather that he's using federal money uh, to push the, his election uh, odds better with the uh, upcoming elections. So I don't know. Um, I, I think Australians have to be very alert and very well educated, and they've got to educate themselves uh, on the uh, existential threats that we face. For example, uh, I suspect most Australians don't understand that if there's a large-scale nuclear war, Australia will disappear, even if a single nuclear weapon doesn't land on Australia. Well, they're joining the nuclear club with uh, the AUKUS agreement. Yeah, well, what can I tell you? Uh, one of the things that Australia has a gigantic advantage, from my point of view, it's grain hermitage and things like that. They have a superb wine industry, uh, which helps me keep my internal environment in good shape while the external goes down the drain. <laughs> but a couple of hundred bucks a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> Or something like that. Well, what are you going to save money for in a world that's going down the drain anyway? Right. Well, just in closing, can you give us a sense of uh, whether the awakening is happening? We have Greta Thunberg waking up the younger generation. Maybe that's the hope, is it, the younger generation? I think so. And and in science, not Greta's age, but people like Corey Bradshaw in South Australia uh, and, uh, well, many other of my colleagues in Australia, we have... In ecology, per capita, the best group in the world is in Australia, and they're trying. Uh, Corey's trying all the time to do something to end our uh, prospects of a ghastly future. And I think between Greta Thunberg and between scientists in Corey's generation, the, the, the mid-range, uh, there's some hope. Uh, but you've got to give them support, and uh, you, we're going to all need a lot of luck. And I wish... I love Australia. I wish Australia a lot of luck. I'd like it to remain the happy country. Well, Paul Ehrlich, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure talking to you. You take and care. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Paul Ehrlich, who is the Bing Professor of Population Studies Emeritus and the President of the Center for Conservation Biology at Stanford University. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Population Bomb, Population Control or Race to Oblivion, as well as Killing the Koala and Poisoning the Prairie, Australia, America and the Environment, and The Annihilation of Nature, Human Extinction of Birds and Mammals. And his latest book is Jaws, The Story of a Hidden Epidemic. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.